Well, thank you, Ira, for that. Well, Gateway family, it's good to see you on this Mother's Day Sunday. Hope you are all doing well. Go ahead and be turning to the, the letter to the Ephesians. Find it on your Bible app or in your copy of God's Word, the book of Ephesians here. As we continue our journey through Ephesians, this is week two of our study of this book. I want to ask you a question as we begin. And that question is this. Who are you? What is your identity? If you're sitting on an airplane or have a business lunch or a friend at school says, Who are you? How do you answer that question? Someone says, in a minute, tell me about yourself. What do you say? What is your identity? Friends, our understanding of your identity is so very crucial. Last week as I ended the sermon, I mentioned to you why, we were, why Ephesians is such an important letter for us to study. And I mentioned to you one of the reasons is there are forces, seen and unseen, that are trying to get our identity in everything besides what it's supposed to be in. All around us are pulls, spiritual pulls, pulls from the culture, pulls from our friends to get our identity in everything besides what it should be in. It can be in lots of things. It's not even sinful things that can pull our identity away from what it's supposed to be. Even good things can take our identity away from what it's supposed to be rooted in. Like boys and girls, it's so good to have you in the service this morning with us today. But if we're not careful, your identity perhaps might not be in who you are in God. It might be in your toys or in your friends at school. It's not just kids that have that trouble as well. Teenagers, perhaps your identity is rooted in other people's opinion of you and being popular and having others like you and what you drive and in what you wear. Moms, even on this Mother's Day, it's possible for your identity not to be in Christ but to be in your children, have your identity in your kids. Any of us, though, our identity can be in lots of things, our jobs, our possessions, our houses, our cars, people's opinions, what others think about us. On and on we could go. And so we need to make sure we understand what our identity is because so much tries to pull us away from what it's supposed to be. So friends, what is our identity to be? As we think about that question, I'm not sending us on some type of self-discovery mission. I'm not going to give you a homework assignment to go sit out alone in the woods for a while and try to meditate and figure out who you are. Our identity is something that has been given to us by God. It's not something that I need to conjure up on my own. It's something I discover through God's revelation to us. God is our creator. God made us, and he made us for a reason. The one who formed us knows why he made us and who we are to be. And so our task is not to come up with some self-identity. Our task is to understand who God says we are as our creator, to embrace what he has said about us, to believe it, and to live it out. In Ephesians chapter 1, that's really what the next 11 verses are all about. It's our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, who God says that we are. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be answering the question, who am I? And yes, it's going to take us three weeks to answer that question. You didn't think we'd go through Ephesians too quick, did you? We're going to spend three weeks on these next 11 verses to understand who we are in Christ. Because what's so fascinating as we start through these, these next several verses, these first 11 verses of Ephesians, God the Father has a role in speaking your identity. God the Son, Jesus, has a role in speaking your identity. And God the Holy Spirit has a role in speaking your identity. And so this week, we're going to look at what the Father says about who you are. The next week, we're going to look at what God the Son, Jesus Christ, says about who you are. And the third week, we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit says about who you are and what role the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have in shaping your identity. Just to remind you, we only believe in one God. But God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three God, but just one God. Three in one, one in three. The mystery that we call the Trinity, but the mystery that we believe because it's who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. And so this morning we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 1, looking at what the Father says about who we are. Because verses 3 through 6 are who the Father says we are and what our identity is in him. And so as we read these first several verses of Ephesians, I want you to be listening for... Who am I? 
What does the Father say about who I am? What has what the Father has done, how does that shape my understanding of who I am? And so though we're focusing on verses 3 through 6, I want us to start back in verse 1 to get the context and to see what's going on. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. The words will be on the screen for you as well. But Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. God, that you've not hidden yourself from us. But God, we're also really thankful that you have revealed to us how you see us. That God, we don't have to spend our days on endless quests to figure out who I am. But God, you have spoken it to us and shown us who you have made us to be. So Lord, for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters, God, I pray that today that your word will come alive. That the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these, Lord, these words to the people in Ephesus, that same Holy Spirit would come and would fill each one of us who call you by name and would open our eyes and illumine this text and show us in new ways who we are in you and how that changes our lives. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would apply this text to each of our lives. We all come from different places with different challenges, with different needs, but you can take this unchanging word and speak it into each of our situations. I pray you do that today for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So these first six verses of Ephesians, what do we learn about our identity here? One truth I want you to see from this text, and that's this, that God the Father has chosen to adopt and transform me. Simple, short, but this is life-altering if we get our mind around this. What is my identity? My identity is I am one who God the Father has chosen to adopt and to transform. So friends, if you name the name of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, your identity is that God the Father, before time began, chose you, set you apart to be adopted, to no longer be spiritual orphans, but to become his sons, his daughters, and not just in name, but in practice, to adopt you and transform you as you become more and more like his child. God the Father has chosen to adopt and to transform me. That is what I want us to get our mind around from these first several verses of Ephesians this morning. Now, before we get into that, there's an important clarification here. This is not the default identity of all people. This is not the identity of all those all over the world and humanity. This is a specific identity for people who are followers of Christ. If you are in Christ, this is your identity. If you are not in Christ, this is not your identity. This is addressed specifically to believers, and that's all throughout our text here. Go back to verse number one. This is the context of who Paul is addressing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. This is written to those who are described as saints, people who are set apart, who are holy, people who are faithful. And so for those who meet this criteria, who believe in Christ and are saints according to God, they are now ones who have been adopted by God and chosen by God and have this identity. And we see that all throughout the text that I just read. Notice the phraseology here and how it's described. Verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Don't skip over those words. It's an important phrase here. He's blessed us in Christ. Look in verse 4. You see something very similar. Even as he chose us in him. This is for those in Christ, those in him. Verse 4. Verse 5, you see something similar here as well. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is for those in Christ, in him, through Jesus Christ. And then even in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Another name for Jesus there. This is for those people who are in Christ, through Jesus Christ, in the beloved, who have been united with Christ. It's just different ways Paul is describing people who are followers of Christ. People who believe that Jesus is God. That he came to earth as a man, fully God and fully man, who believed that Jesus lived a sinless life, fulfilled the law we could not fulfill, who went to a cruel Roman cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve because a holy God cannot look overlook sin. And he bore the holy wrath of God that we deserve, died in our places, our sacrifices, our substitute, but on the third day rose again and is now ascended and living with the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father. This is for those who believe that, who are in Christ, who've experienced that grace. That's all what Paul is describing in this text. But friends, that's not where we begin. We are not born in Christ. That is not our default starting position. And Paul makes that really clear. We're going to get to this in a few weeks, but go ahead and look over at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, just for the context of how significant this is if we are in Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul describes how we used to be. And you were, past tense, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we'll get into more of what that means here in a few weeks, but let's just say that doesn't paint a really pretty picture, does it? That is the default state of all of humanity in the world apart from God's intervention, apart from being in Christ. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Chapter 2, 1 through 3 is not the whole message here. That is where we all start off. But something happens. Something changes. Verse 3. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's going on here? God the Father has looked on unworthy people like you and me. People who are sinners who are in rebellion against Him. And He has chosen to bless us. To bless means to do good for. God has looked upon unworthy people, unworthy humanity, chosen to bless us and do good. He's looked upon those of us who deserve his wrath because we've sinned against him, we've broken his law, we've offended his perfect, majestic holiness. And instead of giving us the wrath we deserve, he's chosen to, verse 3, bless us with every spiritual blessing. But what in the world does that mean? That's a nice little phrase. What does it mean to have every spiritual blessing? Well, Paul's going to highlight that and explain that for us in verse 4. What is the greatest spiritual blessing? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him. So the greatest of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies is that God looked upon those of us who deserve his wrath and chose us. He took us out of that group of people who are, in, who are under his wrath and he chose us for something. But what did he choose us for? Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God looked upon those of us all unworthy, all who have offended him, all who are shaking our fist at God, saying, not your way, but mine, and chosen to call some of us, to adopt us, to make us his sons. God has chosen to adopt us. And friends, our identity is that we are adopted by God. 
Now, when we think of adoption, realize Roman adoption was, was different than kind of what we see in American culture right now. Roman adoption was all about sonship. And so in the culture that this was written to, Paul has a very particular image in mind. Adoption at the time was about creating a son for a family. So in Roman culture, most adoption was adult adoption. A couple would adopt an adult male to be part of their family. It's not like they saw a cute little baby smiling in an orphanage and go, I want that one. This is a picture of a, a family going, I want my name to be carried on. I want my inheritance to be passed on for my family line, for my namesake. So I'm finding an adult man who I'm going to bring as part of my family to carry on my name and to carry on my inheritance on this. And so that's the image that Paul has in mind here for adoption. God is choosing to take people who want nothing to do with him, who are living their own lives content apart from him, and God's going to take them and turn their hearts towards himself, seek them out, pursue them to make them his sons and daughters. Why would God do that? Why would God choose to adopt a people for himself? Well, listen to verses 5 and 6 together because Paul tells us, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did God choose to adopt you and me as followers of Christ? Why did he choose to adopt us into his family? It says here in verse 5, for the purpose of his will, his unchanging will. Friends, just to remind us, God does not change. God was the same 10 trillion years ago, even before there was time, and he always will be the same. We call it the immutability of God. God cannot change. And the unchanging God who existed before time even began purposed in his good, pleasing, acceptable, perfect will to adopt a people to himself. Before time even began, he chose to do this. And because he does not change, he is doing what he had chosen to do before he even made the world, before he even made time. And listen to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That begs the question, why? Why would God adopt us? Why would God take you and me, people who are rebels against him, living in our sin, why would he turn our hearts to himself? Why would he choose to adopt us when we do not deserve that? Well, it's not out of pity, because he doesn't do that for all people in the world. It's not a response to our goodness, because we just read chapter 2, and we're in a pretty rough shape apart from him. Why would God do this? Well, what was the purpose of his will? Well, I believe our text shows us two reasons why God chooses to adopt us, why he gives us sonship and makes us his sons and daughters. The number one and primary reason is so that he would receive worship. So that he would receive worship. Friends, God adopts us as his children, gives us an identity as his sons and daughters, primarily for himself, for his praise and his worship. Now, I know that makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we live in a culture where everything is about us. Our lives are about my happiness, my contentment. I'm the center of my universe, and that's how our culture treats life. When we look at Scripture, friends, we are not the main character. The Bible is not about us primarily. Yes, it's written for us, but it's not about us, and there's a big difference. The Bible is all about God and God's glory, God's greatness, God's fame, His how amazing He is. Friends, God is glorious. We are not. God is worthy of worship. We are not. And so he's chosen to adopt us, to make us his sons and his daughters, to give us this new identity, not primarily for us, but primarily for him. Again, listen to verses 5 and 6 together. It's important when we go through epistles like Ephesians to see context. He predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, Paul tells us, verse 6, what is that will? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So do you see that connection there? We are adopted as sons for the praise of God, for the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, our salvation, the reason you and I are in Christ, is so that God gets the attention, not us. We are followers of Christ, not because it's all about us, but because it's all about God. It's God's glory being seen, his grace being on display. Well, friends, this is not a new idea. Paul is not right here introducing some idea that we've never heard in Scripture. All of Scripture is about the glory of God. All of Scripture is making much of God, not making much of us. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 43, I just want you to listen to a few verses, because this was written 700 years before Jesus came. So go backwards 700 years before Jesus came, even further before Paul wrote this to the people in Ephesus. And we're drawn to Isaiah 43 because there's verses we like about us. So you've probably heard these. You may even have these framed in your bathroom over your sofa, in a little stained glass window over your kitchen sink, you know, on a key tag, and a bookmark somewhere. You probably have one of these verses somewhere in your house. Isaiah 43 has things like this. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's, I don't want to minimize that. That's a truth we won't embrace. Verse 2 in that same chapter tells us, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. We memorize those. We think about those verses because it's about us in our life, and there's hope in those. And again, that's truth. We listen to verses like verse 4, which says, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. And we cling to that, that we're precious in God's eyes, and he honors us, and he loves us. Or Also in Isaiah 43, it says, Fear not, I am with you. And we quote those, and we cling to those. But there's more to Isaiah 43 than those verses about us. In fact, there's a lot more, and they're not the ones we typically are drawn to and go to a whole lot. But also in Isaiah 43, I'm going to put it on the screen for you, verse 6. Listen to what God says. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? My glory, and whom I formed and made. Isaiah 43, the text we run to for hope in difficulties and trials. In the midst of this, God says, I made you for my glory. We go down to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21. God describes us this way. The people whom I formed for who? Formed for who? Myself. He didn't form us for our sake. He formed us for himself there, that they might declare my praise. God made us primarily to worship him. Or down in verse 25 of Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for your sake? No. Whose sake does God blot our transgressions for? My own sake. Friends, this is about the exact opposite of how most of us do evangelism in American culture. We make evangelistic presentations of the good news of Jesus all about, look, God is doing this for you. This is for you. And yes, he does it for us. I don't want to minimize that, but there's a greater reason in doing it for us. The greater reason is right here of what we're seeing in Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Friends, God has forgiven us, yes, for us. He's adopted us, yes, for us. But there's a greater cause in that, and that is for his own sake. That is for him to be praised. So go back to Ephesians chapter one, what is Paul doing here? He's doing the very thing Isaiah 43 is all about. All about verse 3 in Ephesians 1. That's how Paul starts. Blessed be, some of your translations say, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every 
spiritual blessing. Paul's saying, I have been blessed by God with a new identity. I am in Christ. I am adopted. Therefore, I'm going to say, bless you, O God. I'm, because of the blessings I've received in Christ, I'm now going to bless him. So, friends, why did God choose to adopt us as his children, to give us this new identity as his sons and daughters? Number one is so that he would be worshipped, so he would be glorified. But there's a second reason here, and that's in verse 4. The second reason why God chose before time began to adopt us as his children was so that we would be holy. So that we would be holy. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy means to be set apart, to be consecrated. Friends, God saved us from our sins, primarily Isaiah 43, for his glory, for his praise. But right behind that, he did that so that we would be holy as unto him, so that we are set apart, so we can praise him, so we can make him known. And the rest of Ephesians is going to show us what a holy, set-apart life looks like. But there's an important clarification I don't want us to miss here. Again, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, this is not a holiness that you and I can earn or work for. Do not read verse 4 as what I've been calling white-knuckle determination. There's not a verse going, I'm going to grab on and try and try and try and try and strive and hope to baby grow in holiness. That is not at all what verse 4 is about, and we are in danger of missing the gospel if we get that. This is how God already views you and me. If we are in Christ, if we are adopted, when God sees us, regardless of what we did yesterday, regardless of what happened this week, this is how God sees us already. Verse 4, if you're in Christ, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, God already views you as completely holy and completely blameless if you're in Christ. When we think about the cross, what we typically focus on is the idea that my sin got put on Jesus which it did, he bore the penalty of that sin so that I can be forgiven before him. And that's true, but that's only half of the story. All of our sin, if we're in Christ, got put on Jesus. I mean, put on Jesus, we are now forgiven because he bore that sin for us. But we don't stop there. The other thing that happened on the cross is all of Christ's holiness, blamelessness, and righteousness got put onto us as well. Our sin got put on Jesus, and Jesus' holiness and righteousness got put on us. So when God looks at you and me, if we are in Christ, if we are adopted, he's not looking at down at me going, man, that Grady is such a mess. It's disgusting when he comes into my presence. God doesn't do that. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness, Christ's blamelessness. And if you are in Christ, when he looks at you, he doesn't just see one who's forgiven. He sees Christ's holiness in this. And then by his grace, he is now conforming us day by day. So we start more and more practically living out what he already sees us as being. So friends, if you and I are in Christ, that means that God the Father has chosen to adopt and to transform us. To adopt and to transform us. That means, friends, you and I belong to God as his sons and his daughters. That means you and I can call him our Father. You and I are part of his family, and he has a plan to work through us to glorify himself. Well, what difference does that make? Having an identity that I belong to God, that I'm adopted to God, what difference does that make? So I don't want to just end today with that you're adopted by God. That's great. Let's go home and go eat lunch on Mother's Day. There's truth that this should change our life. If we understand our identity, friends, it should revolutionize our lives. If we understand I am adopted by God, He already views me as holy, and He has transformed me, it should change a lot of things in our life. 
And there's a lot of things we could say about this, but there's five I want to just mention quickly today of how I believe this truth that we are adopted by God should change us. Number one, it should lead us to worship. This should lead us to worship. Worship is simply our response to God's greatness. Worship is not primarily about me feeling good and getting warm fuzzies or goosebumps. Worship is about me seeing how great God is and not being able to contain myself because I want to praise him. Back to verse 3 of Ephesians 1, given what Paul does here. Blessed be, I can almost hear him shouting, praise be God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. When we see the bigness of God and we realize we're adopted friends, it should drive us to not just on Sunday mornings in here, but all week long, praise the greatness of God. And that's what really all of chapter 1 is, is a prayer of praise to God and worship for what he's done. So if we understand we're adopted and transformed by God the Father, it should lead us to worship. Number two, though, it should lead us to seek grace to live how God already sees us. It should lead us to seek God's grace to start living out how he already sees us. Friends, if we are in Christ, like I just mentioned, he already sees us as holy and blameless. This should drive us to seek grace to live out practically what, that already, what he already sees us as. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, regardless of what happened yesterday, the day before, the week before, if I'm in Christ, he sees me this way. In fact, there's a verse in the psalm, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, I want you to see. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, there it goes. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In verse 4, it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, but does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Friends, I want to clarify on this one because this verse is taught so many times as, look, you want to be in God's presence, you better get your hands clean and your heart pure or you're never going to see God. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is, you and I can never get clean enough hands and pure enough hearts to ascend the hill of the Lord. We're hopeless. But guess who has clean hands and pure hearts and can ascend the hill of the Lord? And that's Christ. And Christ has ascended the hill of the Lord in our place. And now, covered in Christ's righteousness, you and I can ascend the hill of the Lord. Not because my hands are clean and my heart is pure, but because he sees Christ's righteousness in me. But friends, that truth does not lead to, well, let's go sin. If I'm already as holy as God could ever see me as, let's go have fun and not worry about it. That's not where this truth leads us to. Right? This truth leads us to pursue now living out how God sees us. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 reminds us that Paul is wrestling with the, the beauty of the gospel message and God's grace. And so in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So friends, the truth is, in God's eyes, you're as holy as you can be. Because if Christ's righteousness covering you. That doesn't lead us to sin more. It doesn't lead us to complacency. It leads us to cry out and say, God, give me grace to now live out who you already see me as. And so knowing the truth that God has chosen to adopt and transform me leads us to worship. It leads me to seek grace to be who he's already said I am. But third, it gives me stability and hope regardless of my circumstances. It gives me stability. It gives me hope regardless of my circumstances. Go back to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Friends, we just sang this psalm before the sermon, how great is our God. He is the God who spoke and the universe came into being. At the sound of his voice, the planets form. He is so powerful that when he speaks, things happen. He is all-powerful. And the one who is powerful enough to create the universe with his breath is the one who planned to create you before he even made the world. It's the one who willed to save you from your sins. The one who predestined to adopt you as his child. The one who chose you to use you for his glory. 
And friends, the one who's powerful enough to do that for the universe, to make the universe, and powerful enough to rescue you, is not going to lose his grip on you. That's why we already saw in the Gospel of John that there's nothing that can take us out of his hand. John 28, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And friends, the people in Ephesus needed that. Do you remember the people in Ephesus were surrounded by this massive temple to Artemis? There were people all around the neighbors would all do black magic and all the occult-type things. They were surrounded everywhere they went with the occult, with pagan worship. And there were so many pulls on them. And Paul's reminding them, reminding us, I know life seems really uncertain and life is tough, but guess what? The one who spoke the universe into being, yet he he chose you before he even spoke the universe into being, and nothing's going to grab you out of his hand. Number four, though, I want you to see in this, not only does this truth lead us to worship, lead us to seek grace to live holy lives, not only does it give us stability and hope, but number four, this truth must lead us to humility. This truth must lead us to humility. The truth that God has chosen us and called us and predestined us is not something to puff us up. Because, friends, there's nothing in this text about us being good. There's nothing in this text that elevates us. This text is all about the greatness of God and how helpless you and I are apart from his miraculous intervention. And so it should humble us to show us that God in his kindness to us has taken what we could not do and he has adopted us and given us a new identity. Now, what does that practically look like? If this, if this doctrine, this truth of God choosing to adopt us humbles us, what does that look like? Because I think it affects our relationship to non-believers and our relationship to believers. With non-believers, I think this helps us realize that we were once where they are now. There's no sense of superiority, no sense of I got it figured out and you don't. It leads us to realize I was right where they were. And in humility now, I pray for them. I plead with them. I show hospitality to them because I want them to find the hope that I have found. It's not that I'm above those who are not followers of Christ, but rather I want them to now experience the same grace that I have experienced. And so it changes how we pray, how we speak to them, how we share our lives with them. But practically, this idea of this truth that I'm adopted, giving me humility, should shape how we relate to one another as believers in Christ. Because if I'm a son of God and you're a son or daughter of God, that should radically change how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that you and I in Christ are brothers and sisters. We are part of God's family, and we need to treat each other as such. And friends, it grieves me when I see across the American church so much division between followers of Christ. So much pride in thinking, my way of approaching school, my way of approaching my job, my way of disciplining my kids, my way of teaching, whatever, is better than yours. And the way Christians look down on one another because someone else does it different than they do it, friends, this is the exact opposite of what this idea of adoption of sons and daughters should drive us to. This truth is being sons and daughters of God should drive us to humility, to strive to live at peace with one another, to lay down our preferences for one another. But it should mean when we see sin in one another's life, let me be clear, there's a difference in a sin and a preference. If there's a preference, we need to just let it go for the sake of the gospel unity. But if there's a clear sin, a biblical sin in their life, friends, our job as brothers and sisters is to go to those we love and say, hey, I haven't got this figured out, but I'm worried about you. I see this in your life. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's study the scriptures together on this. Not that I'm over you, not that I've got it figured out, but I want to walk with you to help you deal with this sin in your life. Because that's not what happens in churches. What happens is, do you hear what so-and-so did? Do you hear what so-and-so did? They're sitting in it. All the gossip chains that start happening across the churches as we start talking about people instead of going to them in love, saying, let's work together on this and journey through this life together. Friends, if we realize we are brothers and sisters, we are adopted by God, it should give us a humility that causes us to stop talking about one another and start talking to one another in love. And then lastly, this truth that I'm adopted by God should free us from so many earthly pulls. 
It should free us from so many things that pull from my attention. Back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, do you catch that truth? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. If I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, why do I run after so many things in the world? If God has offered me everything I need, why do we try to find our identity in everything else in this world when we have every spiritual blessing? Why do we try to find our contentment in all these things in the world when we have every spiritual blessing? Why do we find our sense of worth in all these temporary things when we have every spiritual blessing? So what difference does it make that God the Father has adopted and transformed me? It leads to worship. It leads us to seek grace to live holy lives. It gives us stability. It leads to humility. And it frees us from these things in the earth that pull at us. With that said, I want to leave you with a quote from J.I. Packer. He's written a great book called Knowing God that we have out in the hallway out there. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Listen to that again. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. If the thought of God as our father, that I'm God's child, does not control my worship, my prayers, and my outlook on life, it means I do not have an understand, proper understanding of Christianity in that. So friends, that's why we're starting here with Ephesians. What is my identity? Friends, you and I in Christ are ones who were lost, who were separated from God, who were spiritual orphans, are now adopted. We belong to the Father, and He has a grand purpose in doing so. So I want to ask you this question as we close this morning. Does the thought of being adopted by God shape your identity? Does the thought of being adopted by God shape your identity? Do the realization that you are a child of God, a son or daughter of God, does it change how you make your daily decisions? Does it give you hope? Does it give you stability? Does it enable you to treat others with humility? Does the recognition that you are adopted by God change your life? If so, praise God for that. But don't be content. Pray for more. Verse 18 of Ephesians 1, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. If you're already experiencing this idea of being adopted by God, ask God for more and more of it that you've tasted and seen how good it is and you want more of it. But if not, and you know you're his child, but there's something that's a barrier between you embracing your identity as being an adopted son or daughter of God, why don't you cry out this week? Say, God, what is it that's keeping me from experiencing the practical experience of adoption, of being your child? What in my life is a barrier to me living out who you see me as? And ask him to reveal that to you and to transform you. Because friends, if you are in Christ, God the Father has chosen to adopt and to transform you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you've not left us wondering what our identity is. You've not left us having to go strive for it ourselves or figure it out ourselves. But I thank you that you've spoken it to us. And God, for all those in this room, all those who are part of Gateway, who are your sons and daughters, God, would you anchor them today in that truth that they are chosen by you, they are adopted by you, you already see them as holy and you are transforming them. Would you anchor them in that? And God, would that shape all their interactions at school, at work, in the neighborhood, out shopping this week, out driving? I pray every part of our lives as your children will be shaped by the fact that you are our Father. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's never been adopted by you, God, I pray that today they would cry out asking you to rescue them. Because, God, your word has promised us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if there's anyone here who's never called out to you and experienced that forgiveness of being adopted by you, would you let today be the day 
that the blinders fall off and they experience your grace. Lord, for us as your children now, I pray we would respond to this truth in worship. Father, you have given us such a glorious grace, as Paul describes here. Lord, I pray now as we sing about that grace so glorious, God, we wouldn't just sing words half-heartedly, but God, we would treasure this truth that your grace that has made us, has taken us from being your enemies to making us your children, that has adopted us, Lord, that we would do like Paul here and just cry out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would proclaim how great your glorious grace is. God, you'd be pleased with this offering of praise we make to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?